Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm here today with a very heavy hitter. His name is Edwin Vieira. He holds four degrees from Harvard. He has more than 30 years practiced law with emphasis on constitutional issues. In the Supreme Court of the United States, he successfully argued or briefed the cases leading to the landmark decisions Abood versus Detroit Board of Education, Chicago Teachers Union versus Hudson, and Communications Workers of America versus Beck, which established constitutional and statutory limitations on the uses to which labor unions in both the private and the public sectors may apply fees extracted from non-union workers as a condition of their employment. Not only has he written numerous monographs and articles in scholarly journals and lectured throughout the country, his most recent work on money and banking is actually in a later book is called Pieces of Eight. It's a two-volume book. It's about the monetary powers and disabilities of the United States Constitution, 2002, the most comprehensive study in existence in American monetary law and history viewed from a constitutional perspective. He is the co-author of a book called Crashmaker, a Federal Affair 2000, a not-so-fictional story of an engineered crash of the Federal Reserve System and the political upheaval in its causes. His latest book, How to Dethrone the Imperial Judiciary, is another blockbuster in his mix, and Constitutional Homeland Security, Volume 1, The Nation in Arms. Ladies and gentlemen, God help us all. Welcome to its rainmaking time, Edmund Vieira. Good afternoon, sir. My pleasure to be with you. I don't know what to say to you. My God, I don't think very few people in the world have treaded the terrain that you have. Do you know any? Well, not all of it. Uh, obviously, people such as uh, Ed Griffin have uh, covered the Federal Reserve uh, to some degree, and um, you'll find some people in the in the area of the Second Amendment, but uh, no one, I think, that has covered all of those areas. In one of your articles that I looked at on the website, you, I think it was in a something titled, If Not Now, When? Mm-hmm. You made a distinction between not just focusing on the law, but looking at the lawlessness. It was one of the many things that you said, but to really understand the level of lawlessness that's occurring. Is that not the context for what we're seeing in the world today? I think it's the context for what you've been seeing for a number of generations. It's, it's been moving along at a relatively steady pace, but at a certain stage you reach what uh, they call in nuclear physics, you know, the, the, the critical mass, uh, where so much is going on uh, that essentially you get a blow-up. Uh, and I think that's what's happened in our system. You've seen the, certainly from the turn of the 20th century, coming into the 20th century, you began to see... Uh, systematic subversion of the Constitution. A uh, fair amount of that went on during the World War I period uh, with the Federal Reserve System was put in, the 16th Amendment was put in for the income tax, uh, the draft was put in for uh, the armed forces, a number of things along that line. Then, of course, come into the 1930s, uh, major changes uh, were made, uh, what I would call subversive changes, uh, in the Constitution, uh, not only in the monetary field with the gold seizure by Franklin Roosevelt and the outlawry of gold cost contracts, expansion of the powers of the Federal Reserve, uh, but you also had expansion of the powers of uh, the executive branch and of Congress because of 
a number of rulings that the Supreme Court made in the 19, uh, late 1930s. And subsequently, after World War II, you really had an expansion, uh, especially in more recent years with the two uh, Bush administrations and now the Obama administration, of this concept of a very strong uh, president, actually I would say an unconstitutional president, uh, president is exercising powers along the lines of uh, uh, something that looks like Mussolini, really, uh, if you want to make some parallels. But this development has been going on. What you've seen happening was, number one, a breakdown of the federal system so that more and more powers were gravitating away from the states and into the government in Washington, D.C. And then further concentration of those powers in the executive branch of government. Do you, so, when you say executive even branch, from Congress, which is the more representative uh, body, and moving them into the executive branch of government, and the courts increasingly stepping away and refusing to uh, deal with these constitutional problems. So they're essentially washing their hands of the whole matter in a Pontius Pilate style. And what you see then is more and more power has concentrated in essentially one office, the office of the President of the United States now. And at this stage, uh, for all intents and purposes, he can apparently get away with what he wants to. And do you also see that the one of the things that really worries me, although it goes on very quietly, and always has with every single president, is the executive authority, the executive orders instrument to completely bypass Bill of Rights, habeas corpus, Constitution, Declaration of Independence, our foundational documents. I don't understand why it was created. Do you? Well, executive order is a good example of where you had a real perversion in the legal system. Uh, in principle, an executive order was originally designed and should be limited to those areas of the administration where the president has discretion over how his subordinates are supposed to operate. So essentially, he's telling the people within his area of legal competence that you're supposed to behave in certain manners. That doesn't mean that he can tell me or he can tell you how to deal in that way. Congress then added to this by passing some statutes which purported to give the president certain kinds of powers uh, in certain kinds of circumstances. So you have some of these so-called emergency powers that have been granted. I don't think they need the word emergency. If they have the power to grant it, they have the power to grant it. But in any event, it gives the president, under certain circumstances, the power to do this, that, or the other thing. And then the president will promulgate one of these executive orders pursuant to that statutory authority. So some of these executive orders are legitimate because they deal solely with activities within the administration that the president has discretion to control. Some of them may be legitimate because they are promulgated by the president pursuant to statutory authority that Congress is constitutionally entitled to give the president, because the president is, of course, the, the office that executes most of the laws, puts into effect, that is, most of the laws that Congress enacts. So Congress can do that. But what we've seen happening then is this executive order concept expanding into areas where the president simply says, well, I'm now going to direct some area of American activity. By doing so, isn't it a total bypass of that authority? It's like bypassing it and expanding it into the infinite. Well, it's attempting to uh, expand it. You see, the president has no power to expand his authority, neither does Congress. The Constitution limits them. This is just usurpation. 
as our founding fathers would have said. This is the exercise of a power that the president doesn't have, or in some cases even the exercise of the power that Congress doesn't have, because Congress may draft a statute that's unconstitutional, gives the president unconstitutional authority. So we see a lot of usurpation. Now, when that usurpation is directed towards the aggrandizement of special interest groups, which probably in 99% of the cases it is, then we have another technical word for it that the founding fathers used, and that's tyranny. So we're seeing a great deal of usurpation and tyranny that has been going on since certainly the turn of the 20th century, and it's become exponential now. You know, that curve is going up hyperbolically. So that the people in Washington essentially see no limitations on their power. And the classic example of that, not too long ago, Nancy Pelosi the House of Representatives, Speaker of the House of Representatives, was at a press conference, and one of the reporters asked her uh, what was the basis in the Constitution for Congress's power to enact this present health care bill. I was just going to ask you about that. And remember what she said? What? Well, this was the question. Where is this authority? Where is the authority in the Constitution? And she said, this is an exact quote, are you kidding her response to that, her response to that newsman was, are you kidding? As if to say, you know, forget it, we don't need to worry about that. I don't have to show you any stinking badges, right? Now, later, one of her aides or somebody out of, uh, out of the congressional staff came forward and said, oh, well, uh, it's the Commerce Clause that gives us this power. Oh, the ICC? No, the, the interest, what they call Interstate Commerce Clause, the power of Congress to regulate commerce among the several states. Now, that's fascinating because this isn't so much regulation of commerce as compulsion to commerce, right? They're telling people that they have to buy private life insurance. Now, if you just stop for a moment... Is it life insurance or or health insurance? Health insurance. Excuse me, health insurance. Death insurance. I shouldn't have said life insurance. Death insurance the way this thing is working out, right? Because you're going to be denied the care. Uh, You have to buy this private health insurance. And you can only buy their translation of care. Well, that's right. That's right. You can only buy from certain uh, insurance companies. You can only buy what they consider to be appropriate for you. But what's interesting is if you put to, if you put all the founding fathers together in a room with Nancy Pelosi, and they asked her this question: What is the basis under the Commerce Clause? And she's under the Constitution. She's the Commerce Clause. The question immediately comes to mind is, well, how is the government authorized to compel anyone to engage in commerce? How can they tell me what I have to buy? If they can tell me that I have to buy health insurance, they can tell me how many boxes of Wheaties I have to buy or how many boxes of Cheerios I have to buy. And if they can tell me how many boxes of those I have to buy, probably they can tell me how many I can consume per week. And if you spin this out... It never it ends. That under that one little provision of the Constitution, which is essentially a line and a half long of the whole Constitution, one little clause of the Constitution, they can control or they claim to control every aspect of your life. Now, it's an absurdity on its face. But this is the claim they're making in Washington. They have the power to control every aspect of your life because every aspect of your living life involves some level of consumption. Right? Apparently. You have, well, you have to eat to live. You sleep somewhere. You have clothes, etc., etc. And they apparently claim the authority to control every one of those decisions. 
Apparently it involves CO2 now too, which has been the nutrient for plants. I mean, now natural organic food nutrients are considered pollutants. Well, that's right. And the EPA declared that carbon dioxide was a dangerous pollutant, which means that every human being on the planet is emitting a dangerous pollutant. Of course. I just did several shows on this. It's uh, so shocking. So I guess we're all subject to regulation as, you know, by the Environmental Protection Agency. Now, I guess you wouldn't call that commerce because we're not involved in buying or selling when we breathe, but being a dangerous pollutant, we're not subject to regulation by the Environmental Protection Agency. That means all your houses, all your appliances, everything you do, anything you buy. Well, you. Everywhere you go. You are a point source of this, aren't you? You're breathing in oxygen and you're releasing carbon dioxide. You are a point source polluter. You personally, as a thing, are subject to regulation. Forget your, you know, your, your, your washer and your dryer. You. You are subject, you personally are subject to total regulation by the Environmental Protection Agency because you are a point source of pollution of this deadly gas, carbon dioxide. Well, I don't know that they've ever said we are a point source. Well, they said carbon dioxide is, all right? And if carbon dioxide emitted by a coal-fired plant is pollution, carbon dioxide emitted by you is pollution. The carbon dioxide does not change its nature as carbon dioxide depending on who the emitter is or what the emitter is. This is what I'm talking about. We're talking about principles here. The claim has now been made that you can be declared to be a polluter and therefore subject to control by the Environmental Protection Agency. You, because you're alive. It's frightening. And that's the only reason you're emitting carbon dioxide, correct? Yes. I guess when you die, you, know, you decay, so there's a certain amount of carbon dioxide emitted there. But generally speaking... You're emitting carbon dioxide as a consequence of your being alive. And therefore, their claim is that they can regulate you as a polluter because you're alive. Now, I don't care which one of the founding fathers you pick. From Alexander Hamilton, who's usually set up as the example of the one who was uh, the most interested in the central government, he wanted the most, more powerful government in Washington, all the way down to someone on the other extreme, such as Patrick Henry, who was very, very worried about a central government. He wanted powerful state governments and a very weak central government. Okay, which one of those you pick? Can you possibly imagine... Can any person possibly imagine that any one of those founding fathers would accept the concept that this government that they created has the power to declare you subject to regulation simply because you're alive? It's frightening. It is tyranny. It's an absurdity. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't rise to the level of being frightening. This thing is an absurdity. What do people do? What is there to do for the common person who gets it? What can be done? There are tyrants in Washington out of control. Absolutely out of control. It's not about the name of the person. It's totally over the top. It apparently doesn't make any difference which individual gets into a particular office over there because you get the same type of person same type of individual so this isn't you know nancy pelosi as opposed to jane smith right that's why i was saying it doesn't, it doesn't really make any matter difference, okay the political parties are totally corrupt uh the, the media big media are totally corrupt the election machinery is totally corrupt it's run by special interests who apparently are capable of putting in whatever howdy duties and pinocchios they want to have in those offices that is not yet the case 
in all of the states. It may be in some. I mean, Massachusetts, New York, California, you can name some of those states which are pretty much lost to common sense. But probably there's still a majority. Probably you still have 35 states, 30, 30, 35 states, where it could be possible for the people to regain or assert control through their state legislatures. How would that manifest Some itself? kind of legislation that would tend to ameliorate this situation. How would that manifest itself, Edwin? Well, in terms of, in terms of what? In terms of types of legislation? Yes. Well, let's, let's look at the major problem we're facing right now is the collapse of the financial system. And this can have, obviously, very wide-ranging effects uh, because they're talking about the possibility, if you have economic, total economic collapse in the country, of uh, imposing martial law and God knows what else, all right? See these scenarios that come out. So obviously, that's in a sense, that's job one. Uh, if we can't prevent the collapse of the economic system, then we're going to fall into all sorts of other difficulties, which may not be subject to remediation. So we have to look at that. Well, that all focuses on the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve is the cause of all of this. Is it the Federal Reserve or central banking in well, general? Central banking. It's our, our our form of central banking is the Federal Reserve. Right. It's fractional reserve central banking manifested in this particular one that we have. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't have this national problem. There might be some problem with you know, other countries internationally, because many other countries have central banks, but we wouldn't have this problem. So we have to get rid of the Federal Reserve, but you can't do that by snapping your fingers, waving a wand, and, and sending it away, because the entire market runs on the basis of the currency system that's operated out of the Federal Reserve. So we have to give the market some kind of alternative currency so that it can develop a price structure based on sound money, and we can essentially phase the Federal Reserve out because people will choose to use the alternative currency as opposed to the Federal Reserve currency. Well, that's not going to be done by Congress, by stretch of the imagination. Certainly not going to be done at the banks. It has to be done at the state level, and it is possible to draft. I drafted it. Now, other people have, can and have drafted statutes that would introduce a sound constitutional alternative currency within a state, and then other states would pick up on that process, and slowly but surely, I don't think slowly, actually quickly, it would spread across the country like oil on water because the good money will drive the bad money out of the system. That's the short answer to it. So you um, have a statute all ready to go with sound money? Oh, yes. Uh, people people want to look at the, the one I did for New Hampshire. Yeah, that'd be great. Where do we find it? It's Gold Money Bill, www gold money bill one word goldmoneybill.org that was done several years ago and then it was picked up in indiana i think missouri montana had a, a bill so a number of of states state legislatures that have been picking up on this uh, i love it have not yet gotten out of committee but they're starting to introduce them so what's the essence of it well the essence of it is the state adopts in the New Hampshire version, we had them adopting gold. Uh, more moderate, more up-to-date version now would have them adopting both gold and, and silver. Uh, and the state begins using this alternative currency within its own uh, finances for taxing and spending within the state government. Couldn't the Fed stop them, Edwin? No, no, no. That's the beauty of it doing, through the, doing it through the states. Talk about that. The states have a residual sovereign authority. Remember, the states were originally separate countries, independent countries, right? 
I don't think people think of it like that. Well, they don't, but it's the, it's the truth. And, and they formed a union of these 13 independent states, these 13 independent countries. And they gave some of their authority to the general government, the government in Washington, D.C., and they retained other parts of their authority. So we have this federal system which has governmental entities at different levels, from local, state, national levels. Now, one of the governmental powers that the states did not give up, and this has actually been held in cases that went to the Supreme Court of the United States, was the power to choose whatever the states wanted to use as their own currency for the purpose of their governmental activities. Well, that's taxation, borrowing, spending, eminent domain, courts. You know, you run down the list of governmental activities in which a state is involved. The state can choose its own currency. It's not going to be bound by what Congress may emit or what may Congress may authorize. And, in fact, there was a case called Lane County versus Oregon in the late 1800s uh, in which the state of Oregon had a statute that required that taxes be paid in gold. And taxpayer, tax collector actually at the lower level, had collected legal tender paper currency that had been issued by Congress, so-called Lincoln greenbacks of the Civil War. And the question was, was the state required to accept this legal tender currency that Congress had emitted, notwithstanding the state had a statute that said it would accept only gold? And the Supreme Court said, no problem, the state is a governmental entity and Congress cannot tell the state what to use as currency, as money, for its own governmental purposes. So that's the end of, the, that's the end of that. A state now can pass a statute saying, we intend to use gold, we intend to use silver, we intend to use gold and silver. We're not going to use Federal Reserve notes anymore for our state governmental purposes. And that's the end of it. So the what state states, now goes off the Federal Reserve system. What states are you seeing that are close? Well, I think New Hampshire's going to go with this again. Uh, Montana, uh, last year, it was in committee and didn't get out of committee because they have a Republican-Democrat pretty much 50-50 split in the Montana uh, legislature. Uh, I don't think they have a session this year, but they do next year. Uh, Idaho, the people in Idaho looking at it, there were people in Indiana looking at it, there were people in Colorado looking at it, Missouri. There's uh, a similar bill that uses gold coinage in the state of Georgia. So what did I say, five states or six states so far that I know of that are looking at this. And there are others that are rumored to be looking at it. And as this year develops uh, in terms of the economic downturn, I think it's going to be worse this year than it was last year. I think there'll be quite a bit more pressure for a statute of this kind to be laid on the table in various state legislatures. Do you think because that they'll be they'll be desperate for looking for an alternative? Do you think that there's pressure on state servants and leaders to not go with this type of a gold money bill as legal tender because they want federal funding for things or support or help or bailouts or do you think that that could form resistance to going ahead with something like this? Well, I think pressure will be brought on them from a number of directions to stop them from uh, thinking about this kind of legislation, let alone enacting it. But if you, if you look at the federal bailout situation, if what the federal government is saying is we're going to give the state you know, $10 million in Federal Reserve notes if the state complies with some program, all right, 
they send the $10 million in Federal Reserve notes down to that state, and the state converts them into gold, and that's the end of it. Nothing, nothing can prevent the state from converting the Federal Reserve notes into gold anyway. They can take all the Federal Reserve notes that the government in Washington wants to send them and convert them immediately into gold. There's a big gold market out there in the rest of the world, you know. Absolutely. And then the state operates entirely on gold. And the federal government wants to send them these gifts, as it were, fine. I think the difficulty is that you're going to see, you would see it coming out of Washington, uh, the other kind of limitation saying, we won't give you some kind of uh, payment from Washington if you have that kind of an alternative currency system in place. So it takes somebody very strong and visionary and forward-thinking. Well, he just has to look down the road and, and realize that in a few years those Federal Reserve notes coming out of Washington will be worthless. The system is collapsing. What's the point of staying tied to a dead horse? Well, they all know it's a dead horse. They well, I don't know. think they all do. I think some of them are coming to that realization. But then the point becomes that, if that you know, your, your state or local, so your state politician... And you're going to be tied to this dead horse in Washington. Washington's not going to help you at that stage. You're going to have to answer to your local constituents. And you'll be out of office or worse. One of the things that I think would help get more people involved in purchasing gold and silver and also get involved in being part of goldmoney.com is for there to be more attorneys who can do gold contracts. I know we spoke a little bit about that when I first talked with you. But I really think it's a part of the key that people don't know how to do contracts surrounding payment in metals. And so if that were all of a sudden more available, in other words, if it wasn't such a distant thing way out there, like if it became more accessible and you can bring the contractual part of how do you do a contract in metals, you know, because some people think that uh, it's against the law to do contracts in metals. Can you speak about that? Well, it's certainly not against the law. That's point number one. There was a period in time from 1933 until 1978 in which contracts of that type made in gold, not necessarily made in silver or other, other currencies, but made in gold, were not enforceable. There was a statute that made them not enforceable. So you could write one of those things, but if something went wrong, you couldn't take it to court and have it enforced. What about now? 1977, they repealed that. Congress repealed that law. And people who want to look this up, it's Title 31 of the United States Code, Section 5118D, as in dog, 2. And actually, if you read that, it's very clear because it refers to uh, contracts of a certain type. You've got to read the whole bloody section to try and understand it. But that, that's essentially what it means. The gold clause contracts are legal. And what a gold clause contract is defined in that particular section, 5118 of Title 31 of the United States Code, as a contract that requires payment in specified gold coin of the United States. That particular term, gold clause contracts, is kind of generic because it includes contracts that could be written in silver or contracts that could be written in foreign currencies. So it's, it's kind of become a generic term. But these things are legal. All they require is that you be very specific in defining what it is that will be used as the exclusive medium of payment for a contract. So if you write a contract that says the payment will be $500, that's not a gold clause contract, because contract of that type where the dollars are not defined in any way, 
can be paid with anything that Congress has declared to be legal tender for a dollar. So they could be paid with Federal Reserve notes. It could be paid with these uh, base metallic coins, you know, the Susan B. Anthony coins or the presidential dollar coins that they've put out. Wouldn't, in fact, the, the debtor in that situation would not pay in gold. He would obviously not pay in silver. He'd pay in the cheaper paper currency or the base metallic currency. But if you wrote the contract to say $500 payable in $10.50 American Eagle gold coins of the standard of 1985, etc., etc., and there's a lot of things that you could put in that are really specify it, then those $10.50 American Eagle gold coins would be the sole medium of payment allowable at law for that contract. Those coins would be the only legal tender for that contract because the contract had so specified one simply has to know how to make that specification. And if you have a payments clause that specifies that way, then the courts are going to be required to enforce it that way. Actually, I would tell any lawyer, suggest to any lawyer, that you put an arbitration clause in there so you keep the thing entirely out of the courts. You know, if anything goes wrong with that contract, have an arbitrator make the decision. Isn't it the same or similar, having an arbitration? You're still stuck in the courts. You're still paying not quite the same amount of money. Can you make that distinction for well, us? The distinction, the distinction is an arbitrator is a private party that we have contracted to settle any dispute that arises under our contract according to the terms of our contract. Who determines the arbitrator? It, it, well, he could be a mediator first because... You know, we may sit down and, and just try to work out our problem. The arbitrator would then come in, and he would say, well, now I've read this contract, and here's what I think it means, and I'm giving an award to the plaintiff or the defendant in this particular case. All right? And usually what then happens is that the parties go along with the arbitrator's decision because they've agreed to do that. But an arbitrator's decision, if one of the parties refuses to go along with it, They'll take it to court and have the court enforce the arbitrator's decision. The point is, people who make arbitration clauses and contracts are smart enough to realize that they're going to go along with what the arbitrator says. The arbitrators are private parties, so they're going to try and be as fair as possible because they want to be hired again. Right? They have an incentive, an economic incentive, to do a proper job, not like the, the judges, right? So it's not a court-appointed arbitrator. No, no. It's, it, it's done by the private parties themselves. They decide who the arbitrator will be, or they may decide, they say, the contract may say an arbitrator is specified by the American Arbitration Association or by another one of these arbitration groups. So the parties who write the contract specify who the arbitrator will be, and they can also specify what part of the contracts the arbitrator will have jurisdiction. I mean, there's a, a lot of flexibility in it that is much better in the long run than having the thing go in, in front of a court where you discover at the last minute that this fellow you never even heard of before who was sitting up there as a judge now is making decisions for you. It's another part of contractual law that is interesting. The whole issue of arbitration, and I don't want to digress too much, but I know that in my past I've seen contracts where they were so one-sided. The arbitration is handled in their state. The person who's contracting with the other person is the one that's inconvenienced. It's not really like a mutual arbitration agreement or selection. Well, that's where you're dealing with some large corporation and they're giving you one of these boilerplate-type contracts. Right. But if you're talking about a gold clause arrangement, 
it's more likely than not that the people on both sides of that contract know each other. It may be a land transaction. It may be some business transaction. It might be a, a you know independent contractor or working on a particular job. So they're going to know each other. It's not going to be what they, the lawyers used to call a contract of adhesion, where I write the contract with all the terms favorable to me, and you have no choice but to sign it because of your economic situation. It's going to be one where there'll be real mutuality in terms of working out the terms, and everyone obviously has to be in agreement on the goal clause provision, or else that won't go through at all, right? That sounds great. So it, this is not that hard to do. The problem is that most lawyers, obviously, have not run into this. And the other problem is when people sit down to work this out, in business especially, the typical businessman, well, he not only has a lawyer, but he's got an accountant. He may have a board of directors for his little corporation, right? You start adding up all of these other people who have to be convinced of the legality, of the expedience, of the profitability, you know, whatever, all the various aspects of, of that kind of a contract. And so it becomes a, a little bit cumbersome, and that's the grave difficulty at the present time. You don't have enough popular education about this alternative. If people knew as much now as they knew, say, in 1920 about these things when gold cause contracts were quite popular, uh, you know, we'd see them all over the place as we see the banking system melting down. This is one way to protect yourself. Get out of the paper money system. Are you part of Gold Money? Do you use goldmoney.com? Oh, yes. James Turk? Yes. Goldmoney.com? Oh, sure. I've known James for years. Absolutely. He really set up something extraordinary. I interviewed him just a few weeks ago. Extraordinary. Absolutely. And, of course, that's cutting-edge technology, so you're not dealing there with, with coins. You're dealing with electronic transfers of uh, ownership in bullion, and it can be reduced to very, very small amounts, so you can make what used to be called small change, right? Right. Very small amounts. So we're dealing with the, the really highest level of technology. This is probably the first time in world history with what uh, James Turk has done in, in goldmoney.com, that the gold and silver monetary system can really be claimed to be perfected. It's so exciting. I see it as an entire gateway for new commerce, new opportunities, new ways to pay people, for people to expand wealth, to save in a way they never could save before, and save with sound money. It's extremely exciting. I'm totally for what he's put together. I'm a big advocate of James Turk. Well, yeah, I have been too. And with him, as I said about gold clause contracts in general, it's a matter of education. Not enough people know about it yet. Do you think you would be willing to maybe do a seminar or something for attorneys or for individuals to put them together? I think your expertise could help a ton of people get going. Well, actually, I have a little booklet out. Do you? What do you have? Uh, which is called gold clause contracts, gold clause and silver clause contracts. Where do you buy it? Uh, you can buy it from me. I'll give you my address. It's 52 Stone Gate, one word, Stone Gate Court, Front Royal, two words, Front Royal, Virginia, 22630. It's 3495, 3495. Just send me a check of money order. I don't deal with credit cards. Uh, ask for just gold clause, the gold clause book. Sounds incredible. It goes into a history of gold clauses. It goes into some of the, uh, um, what I would call legal, I won't call them so much pitfalls, but it, it kind of gray areas that you have to be aware of, and then gives a set of model 
uh, gold clause language, gold or silver clause language, dealing in, in this particular case with coinage. But it'd be quite easy for somebody to modify any one of those to use the uh, gold gram units, for instance, that James Turk uses. When did you write this? I just did, like two months ago. I'm so glad because my first conversation with you was about the gold clause <laughs> and contracts. Thank you for doing that. Well, people kept asking me, so I said, all right, I'll put a little something together here that will clarify it for the folks who don't know anything about this subject. They can make their own judgments about whether they want to become um, you know, more knowledgeable and actually try to do it. I'd like to promote your book, seriously. I really want to see people doing gold clause contracts. I'm so excited about it. There's an, another book people may want to find by a fellow by the name of Henry Holzer, H-O-L-Z-E-R, called, I think it's, it's the gold, just called The Gold Clause. Now, that was written, oh, some time ago. I think it was probably written in the 1970s. But it's also a useful one. Wonderful. I don't think he goes into quite as much detail as I do on the actual clauses. But that's something they may be able to find in a library, and it gives them a little uh, history on the subject. Uh, did you self-publish your book on the gold clause? Oh, yes. Wonderful. Yeah, that way I can get it out as fast as I want to. It would be great to have it also available as a download. Oh. Well. An electronic download for people so they can get it quickly. Because I think, really, when people are getting ready to do their contracts and do business, mm -hmm. I think it would be great to be a download. Awesome to get it prepared in PDF files, you know, get them numbered and everything and go. Anyway, well, I'll, have to look, I'll have to look into that. I've never done it. Talk about your take on the Constitution. When we spoke the other day, I was a little bit depressed, and I said, is it still in force? <laughs> and you had a very interesting and unique answer. You spoke quite a bit about it. Where is the Constitution now, really? Well, I think the example I gave you was the Ten Commandments. I mean, he had the Ten Commandments since Moses came down from Sinai, right? How long ago was that? And we know perfectly well that they haven't been obeyed to perfection over the centuries. Uh, and certainly today, there's a great deal of murder and theft and so forth going on in violation of the Ten Commandments. And I've never heard anyone say that on the basis of all of these violations of the Ten Commandments, that somehow the Ten Commandments were no longer in force or that we should jettison the Ten Commandments, or they're out of date, or whatever, whatever kind of circumlocution you want to use. Uh, so why would you say the same thing about the Constitution? Because the Ten Commandments is a set of laws. Okay, they may be you know, theologically based. Constitution is politically based. But the Constitution is a law, set of principles. Difficulty with any set of principles or any law is not everyone obeys it. In fact, that's the premise of having the law, is the assumption that we will have people who will disobey the law. That's why we want it written down specifically, so that we can point out to them where their misbehavior lies. So here we have the Constitution, and over the last uh, century and a half, let's say, we've seen quite a few violations of it, uh, and we're seeing more and more of them. Well, who's at fault? Is it the Constitution? Well, the Constitution is a set of instructions for running this political machine called uh, the government of the United States. And like any set of instructions, it's essentially neutral. It, it can't enforce itself. It depends upon the operators of the machine. First level operators of the machine are the political figures, the, the public officials. But who are the ultimate operators? I mean, I like to think of somebody driving in a you know, chauffeur-driven limousine. 
well, who's the initial operator of the chauffeur driven limousine? It's the chauffeur, right? Right. But who's really in control? It's the guy in the back seat. It's the owner. So now if he sees the chauffeur putting salad oil instead of gasoline into the gas tank, I guess it's his responsibility to roll down the window and say, Joe, you're doing the wrong thing here. You're going to ruin this Mercedes. And if Joe doesn't correct his behavior, then the owner, I take it, would fire him and get someone in that position of chauffeur who knew what he was doing and would follow the instructions in the owner's manual. Now, this is our difficulty. We've been watching, in my lifetime, it's several generations, all right, two or three generations, 50 years, been paying attention to this nonsense. We've been watching one chauffeur after another drive this Mercedes over and over again into a ditch. And we're sitting in the back seat there, essentially with our fingers in our ear, doing nothing. So who's responsible? Do we blame the Mercedes? Obviously not. It's the chauffeur. But insofar as we're in control of the chauffeur, have the ability to control the chauffeur, we're really responsible for this mess. We the people. And, of course, that comes back to the preamble of the Constitution, which tells us we the people ordained and established the Constitution. Not politicians, not political parties, not special interest groups, not the people even who were elected to office, but we the people. So we have this oversight responsibility. After all, this is a self-governing republic, right? That's the terminology we like to use. Self-governing. Well, self-governing means that we're doing something ourselves. And unfortunately, we're not doing enough of that governing ourselves. What is there to do? Explain it. Explain it, because... I would bet you, if you ask people, 90% of the people, no matter what party they're from, would say, we don't know what else to do. What is there to do? It's going on like a train running down the track at 1,000 miles an hour, unchecked, like a defilement of everything this country is about. What is there to do? Well, I come back to one point in the Constitution you read the Second Amendment, most people are concerned about that final line, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But it's the beginning of the Second Amendment that really has the punch to it. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Stop right there. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. That's the only place in the Constitution where the Constitution says anything is necessary for any purpose whatsoever. It doesn't say Congress is necessary, the President's necessary, the Supreme Court's necessary. The only thing it says is necessary to the security of a free state is a well-regulated militia. And I take it that a free state is what the Constitution is about as an entirety. It's to give us this political mechanism which will guarantee a free state. So here the Constitution is telling us that to maintain the security of this system, the whole shebang, as it were, we need this entity, or entities actually, as it turns out, called a well-regulated militia. And the, in the body of the Constitution, this appears in the term, the militia of the several states, because there's supposed to be one in every one of the states. Describe what a militia is. Well, that's the point. That's my next point. Well, what is this thing? Well, what are these things? I'll tell you what I thought it was, and I'm not saying I know what it was or what it is. What I've always perceived a militia was were angry, upset people that were getting their guns together and going to fight the system. Well, we don't, we don't get to that stage. <laughs> 
If you look historically, I mean, that's as a young person, that's what I was. Oh, that, well, sure, that's the picture because people tend to think of 1775. They tend to think of Lexington and Concord. But if you look behind that, if you look behind uh, the shot heard around the world, the colonial militias, which is the constitutional basis for all of this, were statutory organizations. There was always a statute someplace that organized the entire able-bodied, free male population. Because, of course, they had slaves in those days, so they didn't include the slaves. They couldn't arm the slaves. And women were not considered appropriate to be involved in that kind of activity. So it was the free, essentially free white male population from 16 to 60, typically 16 to 50, 16 to 60, and they picked those ages because you were mature enough when you were 16, and by the time you got to be 50, 55, or 60, you had rheumatism, you couldn't see very well, you couldn't hear, whatever. You, you were physically incapable, usually, of performing the necessary functions. Uh, they didn't kick you out of the militia, but they didn't require you to be a member of the militia once you reached that upper age limit. But the basic idea was to organize everyone within the community to perform what we would now call homeland security functions. And in those days, I think they were simpler than what we have today. They didn't have quite as many problems as we did then. Uh, they were more quasi-military or quasi-police. Obviously, they had problems with the Indians. If you were in an area where the French or the Spanish were, you might have actually had military problems. Uh, they fought a number of wars during the 1700s. Uh, so there's a quasi-military function, and those people were trained according to the disciplinary structure of the regular armed forces. They were all required to be armed, typically with a firearm that they purchased themselves out of the free market unless they were too poor, in which case the government supplied them with a gun. That was gun control in those days. Everyone had to have a gun. You either bought your own, or if you couldn't buy your own, the government would get you one. All right? Exactly the opposite of what we have today. Is the militia just another word for the armed forces? No. Okay, explain that. In the colonial period, they had each of the colonies would raise troops. And the troops were part of what they considered to be their regular armed forces. The militia was the organization of everybody. So you see in the U.S. Constitution, the militia of the several states are referred to, and then they also refer to the troops or ships of war that states may keep with the consent of Congress, which is a different thing. Because the states had these two bodies, the militia and the regular armed forces. Just as now, under the Constitution, we have two so supposed to have two forces, one being the regular armed forces, the Army and the Navy of the United States, and the other being the militia of the several states, which are now 50, supposedly 50, separate entities, which Congress can call forth, that's the language in the Constitution, for three purposes. Execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, repel invasions. And otherwise, those 50 entities are institutions for dealing with homeland security problems within each of the states. Now, these are not simply military or police entities. If, if that's all they were, that's all they were intended to be, it's very unlikely that the Founding Fathers would have bothered to be sure that they were permanent parts of the constitutional structure, or that the Founding Fathers would have told us that a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state. 
they understood that these entities were ultimately political bodies. Because if you organize everyone in your community, as they did in small units, typically 50 or 60 men in each one of these militia companies, and those people are coming together on a regular basis for training, and in any event, they're all living in the same neighborhoods, because each one of these units was essentially a community unit. What are they going to be doing? What are they going to be talking about a lot more than the weather or the scores of a baseball game? They're going to be talking about political and economic matters in their own communities, local communities, in their states, in the nation. They're going to be actually a, a, a place for political ferment and discussion, which will then lead them to do other things among which might be to become involved in political campaigns, to vote for political officer, or if they see things going wrong, to take other kinds of action. And this is where we've broken down, because now the extent to which people are involved in political, part, in political action in this country depends upon either the extent to which they're involved in political parties, and there aren't very many who are always involved in political parties, or when they become involved during an election campaign every two or four years, or if they're involved in some special interest group promoting some special interest legislation. But the vast mass of people don't do any of those things except every two and four years when the elections come up. Most of the rest of the time they are really apolitical. And why are they apolitical? Because this huge organizational structure which was there at the time the Constitution was ratified and was included in the Constitution for a good and sufficient reason, atrophied. And what eventually happened, early 1900s, 1903 is when this really begins, they take the militia structure which had atrophied during the 1800s because people simply didn't want to participate. It was a lot of work. You had to show up and you had to buy a gun. You had to show up at these training sessions and people didn't see a need for this. And of course, the Civil War occurred. 600,000 people were killed. They were pretty tired of bloodshed. So by the time you get to the turn of the 20th century, early 1900s, the militia structures in, in the states were pretty much um, atrophied. Uh, to a large extent, they were ceremonial. And statutes began to be passed 19, from 1903 on that created what we now know as the National Guard. And the National Guard is actually an adjunct of the armed forces, either the Army or now the Air Force and the, and the Navy. But this was the thing that took over from the function that the militias used to perform. Is that what you mean by constitutional homeland security, is the militia? Oh, absolutely. That's okay. what the Constitution tells us. Right? Yes. Well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. That's the only place in the Constitution where the word security appears. I mean, it's, you know, if you get into a car and you don't know what the, what the various uh, uh, levers and buttons and so forth do, you take out the driver's manual, book of instructions, and you look at the pictures, and you say, oh, this is where the wipers come on. Oh, this is where the lights come on. All right? Now, everybody knows how to do that. But when it comes to the most important thing there is in this country, the set of instructions for running the government, how many people bother to go and read it? Well, if you do read it, if you, you, you know, somebody comes up with a problem and says, we need more security, we need homeland security. 
Some politician says that. We need homeland security from terrorism or whatever it is. We need homeland security. Okay, let's see what the book of instructions tells us about security. And we press that button on word search, right, assuming that we've got this now in PDF form. We press the button on Adobe word search, security. Where does that word come up? Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary to secure a free state. Aha, now we know the answer, don't we? This is what the Constitution tells us. You want security for a free state? Yes. Here's how you do it. You put in a well-regulated militia. What is that? Now, the Constitution doesn't define it. And there's a reason for that. Because at that time, 1788 and then 1791, when the Second Amendment was ratified, everyone knew what these well-regulated militia were. They were in existence in every one of the 13 states. Every one of the founding fathers, unless he was crippled, physically unable, at some stage in his life would have been a member of one of these things. They knew exactly what they were. They knew exactly how they were structured. And they put them into the Constitution based on that knowledge. Our difficulty is we are 200 years removed... And we've simply forgotten all of this. And that's unfortunate because that, what I call a constitutional pillar. If you look at the the structure of the Constitution, there are a number of pillars that hold up this building. There are the three that people normally think of, Congress, the President, the Supreme Court. Then, of course, there's we the people. We the people are a pillar. And we appear in two ways, as, as the electorate, the people who vote in representatives. And we also appear as this thing or things called the militia. Now, any architect who designs a building and puts in five pillars has probably done a study and concluded that without those five, all five of those pillars, without all five of the pillars, there will be some defect in the strength of that building. And probably that architect, after the building was built, would tell anyone that was using it, whatever you do, don't remove one of those structural pillars. Because if you do, at some stage in the future, this building will come down. All right, here are these structural pillars in the Constitution. Congress, the President, the Supreme Court, the states, and we the people in these two capacities as the voters and as the militia. Well, we have the states, we have the voters, we have Congress, we have the President, we have the Supreme Court. What is the thing we don't have? We don't have these militia. We've taken out one of the most important, I would say the most important, the Constitution says it's necessary. We've taken out this necessary support column from the building. And what can we expect to happen in the long term? The building's going to come down. And it's coming down because we now see the failure of these other pillars. We see the failure of Congress. We see the failure of the President. We see the failure of the Supreme Court. We see the failure of the people as the electorate. And we're really depending on this last pillar. And where is it? Well, it's not there. That's the one that the architect told us was necessary. Use that word necessary. That's the one that might hold the building up just long enough to save it. But it's not there. And that's why I say to people, this is your last chance, ladies and gentlemen. The book of instructions tells you this is what you need. You see the thing collapsing on you. And what is necessary at this stage is to, the word I like to use, revitalize, put some vital force back into these institutions. Because this is the only way you're going to inject people back into the political system with sufficient force, potentially, to regain control over it. 
It can't be done at the congressional level. It has to be done at the state level. And it has to be done in whatever state or states are capable of you know, passing the legislation. Regarding constitutional homeland security, you have volume one? Volume one, right. And that's available to buy as well? That's available. They can get it from me at that same address, 52 Stonegate Court, Front Royal, Virginia, 22630. From me, it's 1995. If you go to Amazon, it's more. Okay. And it's called Constitutional Homeland Security, Volume 1, The Nation in Arms. That's right. Does that talk about how to organize militia? That talks about how to organize. Well, it gives you the background of what this is all about. And then what it is proposing is that people organize um, political action groups, not militia. You, you can't organize a militia yourself. That has to be a statutory structure for doing it. We need to get a statute passed. So what I'm proposing in that book is for people to organize local groups, essentially study groups, activist groups, First Amendment groups, the purpose of which is to educate their own neighbors, friends, neighbors, what have you. Figure out within their own localities and states what are the key issues of homeland security they want to address. Just give you an example. If you're living in Louisiana, you've got the Mississippi River, right? Right. So you're going to have problems with flooding. You're going to have problems like the people did during Katrina, right, with the levees in, in um, New Orleans. You're going to have different problems if you're living in Kansas, where they have tornadoes, right? You're going to have different problems if you're living in uh, Virginia, especially northern Virginia, where you border on D.C., and there are the District of Columbia, and there are always the possibility of some terrorist event occurring in the District of Columbia that would have ramifications in northern Virginia. So each state is going to have a somewhat different homeland security context in which to work. So people have to take that into consideration. And then once they've organized a sufficient number so that they can come to the state legislators and say, listen, we have in the state of whichever state, state of Virginia, we have in the state of Virginia, we've organized 15,000 people throughout the state in behalf of this piece of legislation. Oh, and by the way, we've drafted the legislation for you. That's another thing I advocate in the book, that people have to draft this legislation and hand it to the state legislator. We can't let them do it. We have this grassroots movement. We have the piece of legislation. If you don't pass it, at the next election, we're going to take the appropriate steps. And what would that be? To remove you, right? This is a political movement. We work, we got this legislation drafted, we hand it to our local legislator. If he doesn't vote for it, we'll put someone else in who will. And how do you do that? Well, you do that because now you've organized people in each one of these areas, haven't you? No, no, no. I mean, how do you get the person out who's sitting there ignoring it? Oh, okay, the state legislator. Correct. Well, there are, two, there are three classes of state legislator. One is the one that you, that you uh, get in your, in your group to begin with. He's the local legislator who's favorable to this. And so he's working with you on this project. Then the sec- So we don't have to worry about him. He will vote for it. You give him the bill, he'll co-sponsor it, whatever. The second ca- category is the individual who doesn't know anything about this at all. You come to him and you explain it. He looks at it and says, yeah, this is not a bad idea. I'll probably vote for this when this comes up. Fine. We'll see what he does. The third category is the fellow who says, no, under no circumstance am I going to do this. And for whatever reason. 
Well, now you have organized people in his legislative district, haven't you? That's the that's the key that I I put in in the book. So you got to organize people all over the state. You know, not just five people in your backyard, but people all over the state. You organize people in his legislative district, and you say we're going to make this the issue in the next election for state legislature. This is the issue. This is the, the thing the Constitution says is necessary. You're refusing to pass this piece of legislation. We're going to do everything to remove you and put somebody else in. Wouldn't this be considered by official homeland security status as a form of homegrown terrorism in the United States? It's called lobbying. I know that, but the translation of which? Well, they can translate any way they want. All right, it's called lobbying. It's what's done every kind of legislation that you can imagine. People, they get themselves organized either because they're in an industrial group, you know, a business group, or what have you. Or they can organize themselves this way around some particular issue. They draft some legislation, or they get somebody to draft a piece of legislation for them. They take it to their state representative, or to Congress for that matter, and they say, we want this thing passed. And if the fellow doesn't pass it, then that particular union or trade association, whoever it was that sponsored the legislation, says pretty clearly, we're going to work against you in the next election. This is the way the political system works. But interestingly enough, the purpose of this particular exercise is not to put in a piece of special interest legislation. It is to put in the ultimate piece of general interest legislation. I like it. You see the difference? What about the rumblings from this administration that there will be a youth national security force formed and that it will be compulsory? What is that about? I just wanted to ask you because I heard Ron Emanuel talk about it last year. Yeah, and, and it was I, I very disconcerting. Obama has also mentioned it. And all I would say to those two people, I think I said this in a column once on News with Views, I said if they're really serious if they really think that this is necessary, then the Constitution tells them how to do it. We don't need some new system that's going to be invented by Rahm Emanuel. The Constitution's already told us exactly how to do this. And so Mr. Obama should be in favor of exactly what I'm doing. In fact, I should be getting a call from him to come down to the White House so that we could work out the plan for getting this done in the, in the other 50, sta in the 50 states. And ultimately, the reason would be, who is the commander-in-chief of the militia? Who is? The president of the United States. When they're called into the actual service of the United States, I mean, there's, a little, there's a little fill-up there, there's a, there's, there's a little limitation. But if anyone in his position as president is out there talking about, well, we need to have this huge force of people trained you know, to, to deal with these problems in our country. The answer is right there. Did he ever read Article 2 of the Constitution that, that uh, expresses his powers and his authority? Isn't he a constitutional attorney? Well, that's what that's, I've heard that. I don't know. I mean, I never attended a class that he taught. I've heard that he taught constitutional law somewhere in, in Chicago. But, I mean, if I were the president or someone running for president, I might read that section of the Constitution, Article 2, and I would see in Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1, the statement that I, as president, am commander-in-chief of the militia of the several states when called in the actual service of the United States. I would see that right there. And I would say, oh, if I need to have this huge group of people to deal with these homeland security problems, my goodness, the Constitution gives it to me. And I would be out there. I, you know what I would do? I would call a conference of the governors of the 50 states, get them all to the White House, 
and sit down with them and say, here's what we need to do in the next six months. I want all you folks to go back to your states and come up with the appropriate legislation, and let's get these militia structures revitalized so that we can deal with homeland security problems. Instead, what's happening? Well, instead, what they're doing exactly the opposite. They're a bunch of idiots. Let's face it. All right? They talk about, you know, they're conspiring to do this new world order and all this other. They're just idiots. This is really low-level kindergarten mentalities that we have running the country, unfortunately. A bunch of juvenile delinquents. This is trivial. Read the instruction manual. My God, the instruction manual for the President of the United States is not even two pages long. Did you actually watch the President take the oath of office? No. There was one thing, and I haven't watched a President take the oath of office in a while, but I watched it this time. And the one thing that struck me that I was very disturbed by is when he said, I will try to uphold the Constitution. <laughs> what does that mean? I, <laughs> I will try. I don't know. Maybe he was trying to, maybe he was subconsciously recognizing his human fallibility. That we can never be sure that we'll do everything we are supposed to do. But isn't that a very integral role of the President of the United States? Well, the President of the United States has a duty under the Constitution to take care that the laws will be faithfully executed, including the Constitution. All right? That's his duty. And granted, the most he can do is try. I guess people can fail even in performing their, you know, their legal duties. People can make mistakes. Uh, but that is his duty. And if you look at that militia provision in the Constitution... Giving him this authority, delegating the authority to him as commander-in-chief. My gosh, if I, were, if I were the president, I'm looking at the Constitution that says, I'm commander-in-chief of the militia, I'd say, where is this thing? Where are these militias that I'm supposed to be commander-in-chief of? Oh, they don't exist? Oh, well, I'd better go do something about it because that's part of my execution of the laws. I may need these people. What if we have an insurrection? What if we have an invasion? The Constitution says Congress will call out the militia for these purposes, and I'll be the commander-in-chief. Well, I won't be the commander-in-chief of them if they don't exist. I won't be able to fulfill my constitutional duties if I needed these entities, and they're not here. This is the first thing I'd go and do. Don't you think that other countries around the world know that we're splintered and spread very thin? Oh, my goodness, sure. Absolutely. You can read this in the Russian press all the time. It's kind of scary. We're just, we're everywhere. We're all over the place. Yeah, and we're not dealing with, you know, you, you have to secure your home base before you start worrying about overseas adventures. And there's our difficulty. We have a crumbling infrastructure. Most of our basic industries are, if they haven't been shipped to foreign countries, uh, they've been allowed to deteriorate. We've got an educational system that's totally rotten. We've got a political system that's totally corrupt, that's only interested in who's making a buck for some special interest group. Uh, the media is completely degenerate. And the vast mass of people are more interested in who wins the Super Bowl than whether we're going to be involved in a war with Iran next week. So I would say we have all sorts of difficulties. But fundamentally, my view is they come back to this point that people have allowed themselves to get away from their fundamental duty, each individual's fundamental duty, to be a participant in the system of self-government. You can't have self-government unless you would participate. Self-government is not a spectator sport. And to the extent people allow that to happen, if you're not governing yourself, 
somebody else is going to fill that vacuum and start governing you. If you refuse to participate in the system, that doesn't mean the system goes away. It just means that somebody else takes over, and then you will find yourself subject to somebody else's directives. You will no longer be a self-governing individual. You will be governed by somebody else. Do you think there's still a window to shift anything? Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> you know why? You know why I know that? Because I'm because we're talking about it right here and now. We still have a sufficient amount of free speech. We still have a sufficient opportunity for free association. We still have a sufficient opportunity, at least in some of the states, to gain control directly or indirectly of our state legislatures and get some legislation passed. The difficulty is that the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the crisis, the onrushing crisis, is one line on the graph, and the other line on the graph is the level of public education. Do we have enough time to educate enough people or to find enough people who are already educated to take these steps? That I don't know. That's the real problem. That's the roll of the dice. Are there enough people... That's the X factor. Yeah, the X factor. I think there are enough people, but we're spread out all over the place. That's the difficulty. There's no one mailing list. There's no one email list that you can, you can press that button, and all of a sudden you contact all of these people all over the country. You have to find them rather laboriously with what we're doing right now, right? Let's talk about the TSA for a moment, can we? Sure. It just happens to be very ripe and happening, and there was a gentleman who is a war journalist who was handcuffed because he wasn't cooperating with TSA and apparently was asked for his email passcodes and how much money he makes. Michael Yon, I think. Yon, yeah, right. I read about it. And I want to know your response to this. Well, my response to it is they have such authority as they have, and it goes no further than that. Because obviously the grave difficulty for the average individual is if he says, you know, they ask some question, let's say, they ask him his, his income or his grandmother's name, or whatever. And he refuses to respond. Well, then there will be some immediate consequence. In his case, I think they, they handcuffed him, right? Right. And they took him into a, some separate room, and they started grilling him. So there'll be this immediate consequence. Uh, and obviously, people are not going to face that consequence if they're going to miss their flight, or what, you know, that type of thing. You'll lose their vacation because they're tied up and miss the flights. Uh, and then what's his response to this? Well, I guess he's going to have to sue somebody, right? So you're talking about uh, court time and lawyers' fees and all the rest. So I suppose the, sh the short answer is uh, you've, you've got a group of people there who are, uh, what shall I say, sub-marginally trained, these TSA operatives. And, uh, you know, they're pushing their weight around because they have a badge and a uniform. And they know pretty much that almost anything that they do to people within certain limits, I guess they couldn't beat them with baseball bats, but within certain limits, they're not going to be drawn on the carpet, they're not going to be disciplined, they're not going to be fined, they're not going to be punished in any way. So it's a way for them to show what tough guys they are and to feel important. And what, do you, what was one going to do about it? I think this thing has to be corrected at another, at another level. Well, how? That's, it's a long march. I think we've got to start at the state level. We've got to gain control of our state governments first. I have a quick question practically about the TSA interactions. Which Do one? people constitute...
constitutionally have to give their private information to the people at TSA. What is the truth about that? No. No. And I, and I'm I also not so th- sure whether he was involved with TSA or whether he was involved with Border Patrol people. Well, I think TSA brought in Border Patrol. Yes, it's an interesting question because the Border Patrol people, if you're actually crossing the border into the United States, they have some more leeway there because they can literally keep you from crossing the border. Now, if you're dealing with TSA, say, well, you're inside the United States traveling from one city to another, then they are theoretically limited to information related to that particular travel event. So, I mean, they could look at your, your ticket and ask you, where are you going? You say, well, I'm going to Atlanta. Okay, fine. If they say, well, after you're in Atlanta, you know, who are you going to visit there? No, they're not entitled to know that. They're not entitled to know if, if they find $500 in your pocket where that came from or what you intend to do. Do you remember that event with the Ron Paul campaign organizer? Yes, I do. It was public, though. It was all over the news. Right, all over the news, right? And they were trying to grill him because he had checks or cash or whatever that he had collected for, for the Ron Paul campaign. Right. Now, well, it, it turned out, of course, that the authorities, <laughs> TSA and others, said, well, they weren't entitled to that information. Absolutely, they weren't entitled to that information. Your difficulty is you're there with some thug, basically, who's pushing his weight around, and you tell him, well, you're not entitled to that information. Well, I'm going to take you to the other room and handcuff you. This is our difficulty because there's no enforcement mechanism to deal with those people. And that's because we've allowed the national government, the government in Washington, to get out of control. And that's because we've allowed the state governments not to assert their role in this system. How would that manifest itself at this point with regard to TSA? Well, it won't manifest itself at this point with regard to TSA because we've got to do a lot of things before we get to TSA. I also think that TSA representatives, when they ask those questions... I think that 90% of the conflicts happen with the way they're answered. Not with what's said, but with the way they're answered. I just have a feeling on a human dynamic take that it wouldn't even matter what people said as long as they participated in the game. It's tragic. Oh, you mean if they, if they were respectful? Yeah, well, I mean, if they were respectful and just went with the flow doesn't even mean they answer honestly they just go with the flow they play the game because to show any disdain or disfavor or unpleasantness or disagreement with the game there's obviously a usurping of power the people in tsa can abuse their power because they don't have any enforcement or management that says that they can't do it and so on a practical remedy for the public it seems to me the human element of just playing the game. Well, the practical remedy is you just swallow and go ahead and you know play the game, as you say. But the whole point of the game, it seems to me, on their side, is to put people into the mindset of, of robotically obeying these supposed superior authorities who have flash a badge and have a uniform. This is the problem. I agree. All right. I agree. I mean, if someone asks an impertinent question just because he has a uniform and I tell him to go to hell, I'm entitled to tell him to go to hell. And he should actually expect that answer for asking that question. I do not have to grovel before this individual who's acting outside of his authority. That's the difficulty with this country. We had to, we've turned everything upside down. 
And the people who should be subject to criticism are the ones who are refusing to accept criticism. And the ones who are entitled to give criticism are the ones who they think they can punish for criticizing them. It's exactly upside down. Is our Bill of Rights in force? Well, everything is still in force. I mean, the, the, the fact that somebody... Um, you know, we have laws against bank robbery. Banks are robbed. Are those laws still in force? Well, I guess they are. Even at the bank that was robbed that afternoon, they're still in, the laws are still in force. You've got to go out and catch the lawbreaker. Right? Prosecute him. And we certainly don't expect that the laws are self-enforcing or that no one will ever attempt to violate them. Our difficulty is with the Bill of Rights that the people who should be doing the enforcement, federal or state prosecutor, I mean, if I were a federal prosecutor and some of that nonsense that I've read about with TSA went on, I would prosecute them just to make a show of it. I'd grab one of those guys and prosecute him just to show that you can't get out of line this way. If you've been given a badge and a uniform, especially if you've been given a gun, which some of them have, then there is a terrific responsibility on you to, in, to behave, strictly speaking, within the parameters of the law as it applies to your particular job. And if you step one angstrom unit outside of that line, some prosecutor should fall on you like a ton of bricks. There is nothing more dangerous than people abusing official authority. Better to have a hundred bank robbers than one policeman who's on the take. Powerful. But we don't do that. We do exactly the opposite. Right? They'll chase a thousand people that are, you know, shaving a few bucks off their, their tax returns. But what do they do with Geithner? So, speaking of Geithner, let's talk about how to dethrone the imperial judiciary. <laughs> That's your latest book, right? Well, that's that one of them. The latest is Constitutional Homeland Security. Right. One before. Let's talk about how to dethrone the imperial judiciary and please explain what it is. Well, the imperial judiciary is actually not my title. The title the publishers gave it. What they're talking about there is this concept of judicial supremacy, the idea that the courts, and in particular the Supreme Court of the United States, is the final authority on the meaning of application, construction, whatever word you want to use, of the Constitution. The old saying was, Constitution means what the courts say it means, or what the judges say it means. Now that is absolutely, fundamentally, and completely wrong. And how do we know that? We know it in a lot of different ways. First way is that the Supreme Court exists in 1788 when the Constitution was ratified. No! There was no Supreme Court, there was no Congress, there was no President. They ratified this document. We, the people, in the various conventions in the 13 states, eventually ratified this document. Did the document have a meaning then? Or did they ratify something that no one knew what it meant? Well, of course it had a meaning. Did that meaning derive from some decision of the Supreme Court? Of course it didn't. There was no Supreme Court. Ergo, the Supreme Court cannot be the final authority because it never was the authority. What is it there for? Well, it's there to deal with particular cases and controversies, but what do we know? We know that the Supreme Court, like any other body of human beings, can make a mistake. It's admitted that it's made mistakes. There's a, uh, an opinion, Payne versus Tennessee, which is, in, I think, volume 500 of the United States Reports, where there's a footnote that goes on for about a page listing 
and I don't know if it has all of them, but listing what the Supreme Court thought was a complete list of all of the cases in which it had reversed itself on constitutional principles, where it had admitted that it had made an error earlier on. All right? So what does this tell us? The court can be right or it can be wrong, and that usually depends upon the composition, which particular people happen to be on at a particular time. But can the Constitution be right or wrong? Does the Constitution change its meaning? The Constitution is what it is. But the court can be right or wrong. Unfortunately for a litigant, someone in a judicial case, the Supreme Court of the United States is the highest court in this country. So if you go all the way to the Supreme Court and they make a mistake on your case, well, that's too bad for you. You just don't have any recourse. That's the end of it. That's one of the flaws in the system. There's no way out. You lost. You should have won. They made a mistake. You lost. Unfortunate. Okay? But that doesn't mean the Constitution changes because they made a mistake in your case. Our difficulty is that we've bought into this idea, or some, some people have bought into this idea, that if the Supreme Court makes a mistake in a case, somehow everybody else is bound by that mistake. Well, I'm not bound by the mistake if I'm not a, a member of a, you know, one of the plaintiffs or the defendants, if I'm not one of the litigants in that case. Congress is certainly not bound by it. The president's not bound by it. The states are not bound by it. But there's our difficulty. But precedent, and, it's all about precedent. And well, precedent that, doesn't mean anything. Why not? Well, because all precedent says is, here we have a case, and we look at earlier cases, and if the earlier cases are the same or similar, we follow the same reasoning. Why do we follow the same reasoning? Well, because we want to have uniformity in the law. We don't want the law bouncing back and forth and changing from case to case. But does that mean that if, in this particular case, we look back at the earlier case, we see the earlier case was wrong, that we follow it be, even though it was wrong? No, that's why they overrule earlier cases. They're not bound by the precedent. Precedent is not like a statute that binds them. So even the Supreme Court feels that it isn't bound by these things. So why is the whole country bound by them? It's an absurdity. Now, the reason that the politicians in Congress go along with this is because the court works hand in glove with them. The court has been for years, decades, expanding the power of Congress through judicial opinions. And then congressmen can come back to their constituents and say, oh, well, we're doing this because the court told us to do it, you see. We're not trying to take power away from you people, but the court told us. All right? So it, it's a nice game that they play. It's Breer Rabbit, right? The opposite, you know, Breer Rabbit, don't throw me in the briar patch type situation. They're using the court as a shill for the expansion of governmental power. And it's fascinating to watch this. How many times has the Supreme Court declared a statute of Congress unconstitutional in comparison to how many times it's declared a statute of the states unconstitutional? And the answer is huge disproportion in terms of how many statutes of the states have been declared unconstitutional. Why? Because they're trying to transfer power from the state level to the national level, centralized power. The Supreme Court has been a power-centralizing device. In a sense, it's exactly what you'd expect. That's what the, 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 the Patrick Henry group, the so-called anti-federalists, Thomas Jefferson group, were more worried about than anything else in the governmental structure. That that's what would happen, that the, the court judicial system would be used as a power-centralizing device. Do you have any experience with the UCC? Yes. 
Yes, yes, many years ago. Everybody goes to law school, reads the UCC, or if you take a bar exam, you usually read the UCC of your particular it's state. Very, it's very, very involved. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a code that deals with commercial transactions. It was originally written because of the problem that you had different uh, uh, contractual um, law in different and uh, property law in different states, and they wanted to create a uniform body of commercial law across the country. How does it help us, or does it? Well, I think it, I think it helps people that are engaged in that area of commerce because most of the states have adopted... See, the Uniform Commercial Code, the original idea was that there was this body of experts who drafted it, and then they hoped that every state would adopt it in the same form, and therefore you would have a national uniformity, but they didn't. So, yes, the UCC looks similar in different states, but some states have added their own or subtracted something or what have you, so there's some differences. But the, the basic idea is they have created a, uh, tried to create a pretty much national code of commercial transactions of a certain type. I mean, you have to fall into a certain category of commerce before you're subject to the UCC. What would that be? Well, what they call merchants. I mean, they're defined. All right? I'm not a merchant. I mean, lawyers are not merchants. Or if I were an itinerant bookseller, which I am, right? I'm not, a, I'm not one of their merchants. I'm not engaged in that kind of transaction, so I don't come under the UCC. You mean buying and selling of things or manufacturing, or what do they determine as a merchant? Well, you have to look at the specific, uh, I mean, traders, uh, people who are dealing in the, the commodity trading. Uh, I mean, look, look at the code. So that's basically a body of law, is it not? Yeah, well, it's a, body of, it's a body of law that was originally drafted by a committee of experts, and then it was taken to each one of the state legislatures. And usually they made a little change here or there for their own local purposes. Interesting. You know, there's a, there's a uniform commercial code, there's uniform uh, uh, law of, uh, partnerships and trusts. There are a series of these uniform laws that were created exactly for the purpose of generating a national standard in particular areas of law so that we wouldn't have 50 different uh, legal systems for contracts, for uh, partnerships, for whatever. Would the Gold Clause contract fall into good keeping or harmonization with UCC? Yeah, there's no reason that they couldn't. There's no reason that someone that was operating on a UCC couldn't make a gold clause payment provision in a contract. Got it. Okay, that's what I wanted to ask you. I don't think there's any problem there. What do you hope to see in the next year in the United States? Hope or fear. <laughs> I think that's happening already. <laughs> well, what I fear is a real downturn in, in the economy. I fear uh, the possibility that uh, you know, the, federal, the federal bond market is going to be in serious trouble, so we look at the possibility of the beginning of hyperinflation. I mean, all sorts of great difficulties. What I hope to see is in one or more legislatures, probably not a, any kind of militia bill passed, because I don't think we have enough people organized anywhere to get that done. But one of these alternative currency bills put in and at least gotten to the floor of the House or the Senate for a full floor debate. 
Because those are the steps, right? You introduce the bill, it goes to committee. We've done that in a couple of states. It's gone to committee. There have actually been some hearings. And then the committees have voted no. So it never got to the floor of the House or the Senate. So the next stage is to get it out of the committee, same type of bill, get it out of the committee, get it onto the floor of the House or the Senate where it receives full debate and publicity for the general public. The general public, even in the states where the legislature is closer to the people, the general public usually doesn't pay attention to what's going on in state government committee meetings, right? Right. But sometimes they do pay attention to what's going on on the floor of the House, on the floor of the Senate, especially if perhaps you could get the governor in favor of one of these bills. Now it becomes a matter of real public concern. Give the website again for the Gold Clause. Gold Clause? Goldmoneybill.org. And you can see there, I think that was the last version of the bill that was drafted for New Hampshire. If you go to Montana, I'm not sure what... I'm on your site right now looking. Okay, goldmoneybill.org. Right. Find it? Yes, I'm here. Okay. Montana has a similar bill. I think it was House Bill 63 in the last session. But if you look up Montana Gold Money Bill, you'll have a number of places on the web that there's information on that. Wonderful. And that, as I say, was a, a bill that was focused on gold. It was used, We were using electronic gold, so it would have fit in with the gold money type operation. Right. Goldmoney.com. Although it wasn't directly tied to goldmoney.com, we were using that type of a system. So it was at the cutting edge of technology. Uh, right now, if I were to redraft that bill, we could now do it in both gold and silver because I know that uh, uh, gold money also has silver as well as gold accounts. Right, and platinum. Oh, platinum, okay. Well, platinum yeah. too. I don't know if platinum would be too useful. But the beauty of silver is that uh, you, you really want to get both of them in the system for maximum effect. Right. Both gold and silver. Um, and it wasn't at the time the New Hampshire bill was, was drawn up, no one was dealing in electronic silver. And now at, at least James Turk's gold money is. Yep. He has gold silver. Uh, Silvermoney.com. Right? The last thing I want to cover with you today, and I really appreciate you taking your time and making yourself available. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I want to talk to you about the progressive expanding electronic ticketing that's going on, both electronic parking meters and traffic lights. This is so disturbing to me about what's happening where, particularly when you're driving, you can be caught in the middle of an intersection, it can turn red, and there's no context for you. There's not even a remedy to fight an electronic ticket. Because it snaps in the moment and you don't see what's happening in a whole system's context. And I really feel that this is the beginning of the shutting down of a society when you have an ability for somebody to not be able to go in and take care of a remedy and there's no context for these tickets. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, yeah, so that's the interesting question. I don't know because I've never litigated one of these cases, but imagine the situation where... You go across the line, and for whatever reason, 
maybe you know a dog runs in front of you or whatever. Well, I've had it happen. I've had it happen to me where the thing went off and it snapped a picture. Snapped the picture, right? You had some explanation of what happened. It was obvious what happened, but the electronic light didn't get that. It only got in the moment, out of context, didn't see the car behind me, didn't see the car in front of me. But you did. Yes. But you did. All right. So this is what I'm wondering about. One comes into court, and here's this picture. Now, the picture is, as you say, just a frame of an instant in time. Correct. And of only what the camera was looking at. Correct. And here you're the witness who testifies, well, judge, there was this, and there was this, and there was this, and there was this. You're the only witness. There's no witness against you, right? The witness against me is the snapshot of that instant in time out of context. Yeah, but you see, here's the point about it. That instant in time out of context snapshot is not inconsistent with your testimony, is it? Because your testimony is talking about some things that aren't in that picture. It's not inconsistent with it. If I were a judge, I would simply say to the prosecutor, whoever it is, the person standing up for the, for the locality, I'd say, well, I have a witness who's uncontested who said the following things happened. Your evidence, Mr. Prosecutor, is not inconsistent with that, so I can't impeach this witness's credibility. And this witness's credibility is consistent with a not guilty determination, and so I'm not going to fine her. Go home. What I've learned, I did a lot of research about this, this happened years ago, is that in almost every case where someone tries to contest an electronic ticket, it is always denied. Well, I, what I wonder is two things. Number one, you know, it depends on the facts of the case, especially if they had some other witness. Maybe there was somebody else in the car. Maybe there was someone in a car behind or on the street. Well, you get some other witness. Usually people go alone, Edwin, to fight these things. They usually well, there's your problem, yeah. all right? That's exactly the problem. I had this with my brother many years ago. It wasn't a camera. I was in the car with him. He, he gets into a, the middle of an intersection because there's a car in front of him turning left or whatever. There's some kind of a problem. The light changes. So now he's hanging in the middle of the intersection with a red light on. And so he drives to the other side of the intersection so he won't block it. Well, it just so happened there's a policeman coming down the other way, and he comes over and gives him a ticket. And I said, you know, I saw all of this. I'm the witness. I'm going to go in and testify. You know what's going to happen when you get in there? I'm an attorney. Right? You know what's going to happen when you get in there? What? And he just kind of looked at me. Well, all right, I came all the way back up to Rhode Island from Virginia for this case, because I wasn't going to let this happen. <laughs> I sat there all day in the, in the traffic court. I guess to the end of the day, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the judge finally calls my brother's case. And he asks for the... You know, arresting officer, the ticketing officer, who wasn't there. The guy, of course, didn't show up. So he had to dismiss the case. I didn't even get to testify. But so he did, this judge. He lectured my brother about going through red lights as if he were, as if he were guilty. He couldn't find him guilty because the, the ticketing officer didn't show. Did and in Rhode Island, the ticketing officer isn't there. That's it. Did your brother get a chance to speak? No. He just stood up in front of the judge. The judge looked around and said, where's, the, you know, where's officer so-and-so? Not here. You know, call in the hall. Somebody bailiff went out and called in the hall. Officer so-and-so didn't show up. So well, I'm going to dismiss this case. But I want to tell you, Mr. Vieira, you, know, you can't drive through red lights going on like this for about five minutes. I said to myself, what sort of a jackass is this? This is your difficulty at the lower levels. 
in the judicial system, you have real morons on the bench. I just wanted to know what you thought of the constitutionality of oh, the Oh, I think the constitutionality ticketing. of the thing is rotten. If, if, if you have some contrary evidence, here's the whole point. If the only evidence is, here's a picture of your car, and it's in the intersection when the light is red, that's evidence from which someone could conclude that you crossed that line when the light was red, provided that they have some kind of... Uh, you know, data about how fast the camera shoots and so forth and so on, right? So you could contest all that business. But assumedly, that would be sufficient to say, yes, this person crossed that line when the light was red. And assuming that that's the law in that jurisdiction, if you cross that line when the light is red, that's a violation. End of discussion because they have evidence. Now, if it turns out that you can say, well, I crossed that line when it was green, but I had to stop because this dog ran in front of me, that's sufficient evidence for you to be exonerated. If they say, we're not going to accept that evidence, or we're not going to listen to that evidence, let's put it that way, we're not going to listen to that evidence, forget about accepting it, we're not going to listen to it, we're going to take the camera and that's the end of it. That's a constitutional violation, because clearly... The particular statute requires certain kinds of behavior. If you can prove that that behavior is not there, even though there's a camera that shows some incident in time, you can't be convicted. Now, what obviously they're doing is they're telling pe people, for, you know, forget the evidence. We're collecting money out of this. This is a money-making operation. That's my concern, is that I feel that the electronic ticketing is a mechanism of going after regular citizens on a very, very high level, in a snapshot in time, and using a police apparatus to make money for the state. Yeah, it's just a ripoff. And what they know is that the average person is probably not going to be thinking of what kind of evidence he has to have to beat this charge. He's not going to be able to marshal it, even if he knows what it is. Is he going to go back to that area and try to find the person who was standing on the street corner? Is he going to come in with a lawyer to challenge this? And when that low-level judge in traffic court brushes him off and says, $50 fine, is he going to take that up to the district court level, circuit court level, whatever the appeals level is, and go through that process as they say, de novo? Is he going to do that for the $50 fine, $100 fine? Probably not. So we have here a simple method of looting the public. And to me, that's a form of lawlessness. Uh, that's right. What I would do, and I can remember this from a, uh, it was an Alfred Hitchcock uh, television production many, many years ago. Uh, this man and his wife are driving through a rural town, and uh, he gets run down by the police, and his, his, his car is it breaks a, uh, one of the wheels or brakes. In, a, in any event, they, they, they find him, and they, he gets ripped off by the... Um, uh, auto mechanic, the local auto mechanic, and the whole thing is one of these classic examples of, you know, everyone's in it together. The local police chief is in it with the auto mechanic who's his cousin or whatever and so forth and so on. And the thing ends with these two people driving out of town and laughing to each other. They've collected all this evidence. They've been working for the, the county prosecutor. And they're now taking all of this evidence of the corrupt actions in this little town back to the prosecutor so he can take all these people and prosecute them. And I think that's what you really need, is some county prosecutor who was actually interested in the public welfare coming into small-town USA where they're pulling this kind of stunt with the cameras and setting them up for a prosecution. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been listening to Edwin Vera, who is the author of Pieces of Eight, 
the co-author of Crashmaker, the author of How to Dethrone the Imperial Judiciary and Constitutional Homeland Security. Give your website again, please. Well, you can reach me at, through newswithviews.com. And also the Gold Claws site. The Gold Claws site is goldmoneybill.org. That's the statute. And if you want the, the book, it's thirty four ninety five. Edwin Vieira, check on money order. 52 Stonegate Court, Front Royal, Virginia. Very, very interesting to be with you in this broadcast. I learned a lot listening to you. Ladies and gentlemen, listen very carefully to him. He has tons of experience and can separate the wheat from the chaff. Edwin, we look forward to having you back again, and thank you so much. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Take care.